0: Faster, stronger, smarter. Coach Stephanie explores the art and science of ketogenic diets to optimize athletic performance. Welcome to the Keto Endurance Podcast. Welcome everybody to the Keto Endurance Podcast. As you have heard before, Peter Defty is one of our regular guests because he just is full of knowledge and has helped so many athletes like me achieve pretty outstanding goals Just had another athlete break a couple world records. So welcome, Peter.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Stephanie. Glad to be on.
0: So uh, I wanted to have you on to catch up on new things in endurance training and Vespa and the world of uh, fat adaptation in endurance sports, because it's been a while since we chatted. So if you could just bring us up to date on Anything that's been happening in the last uh, six months to a year that's really bringing uh, this new paradigm to the forefront?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, we're working on lots of things right now because uh, it's a little bit complicated to kind of go into detail about, but we're working on on continuing to uh, develop our OFM optimized fat metabolism program um, for both um, athletic performance and, uh, overall health and fitness. Um, as I said several times, I think there's a whole nother paradigm of what is healthy fit and performance related out there that, that, we currently don't see in the, uh, you know, athletic sphere. And, um, but, you know, as Jeff Bollock has aptly said, um, we're leading the science, so the science, you know, it's kind of difficult for people to understand that unless you've actually experienced it. So, in the last oh six months, we've had you know several things happen. You know, people breaking records, uh, whether it's a age group or just break, setting a new personal record or personal best. To people winning their divisions. To oh, people like Caleb Neth setting a new world record for you know, pushing a jog stroller to a marathon. I think he ran like a 2:33 marathon pushing a jog stroller with a, with a, like, like a four or five year old daughter. In it. So, um, and, uh, John Olson just recently qualified for, uh, the 24 hour world. Uh, he's coming back now after several years of taking a break and, and two weeks before, he ran a 155 miles, 22 hours. It was a 24-hour event, but he quit at 22 hours because the world championships are only three months away, so he wanted to save his legs. Oh, well, so,
0: that's nice. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, and he actually he actually ran through 100 miles in 14 hours. And then as soon as he clocked that, then he backed it off a notch and then continued to run like seven, eight or eight. He went from like seven-minute miles to eight-minute miles. 8:15 pace for hours and hours until like 20 hours, and then when he knew he had it in the bank, he just walked for the next two hours just to make sure he was there was no way he would get kicked off the team because he wanted to really save his legs. And um, as you know about the whole Best Buy OFM paradigm, uh, the recovery is is what really blows people away. And he, he when we debriefed, he said, "Yeah," he said by Tuesday I had no soreness at all. And he said, "I think." Probably most of the soreness was the fact that I flew home that night after finishing the event, and was sitting on the plane, you know, stiff-legged for several hours. Right. And, uh, and that would so, make
0: anybody sore. Even. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't. You know. Anybody listening to this knows that you don't even have to to run any significant distance to be all stiff after sitting in a cattle car for several hours. But, but anyway, that's the kind of things that we're doing, and that's that's off the top of my head. I mean. You know, anybody can go to our Facebook page, Vespa Optimized Fat Metabolism page, and they can see what athletes are doing on a daily basis. So we've got a lot of interesting things coming up with uh, John doing the 24-hour world championship. Um, We're working again with Roman Bardet um, for the Tour de France. And, um, you know, several really good ultra runners, Jeff Browning, uh, Anthony Kunkel, uh, Zach Bitter, I think. And, um, you know, just a lot of up and coming people, just people of all ages. I was on the phone with John Rutherford, who's one of the subjects out of the faster study. And he got a Kona slot qualified for a Kona slot this year. And we're, we're just kind of, um, going over, you know, what we can bring to the fore with that, some tweaks we could bring to his training and to his nutrition so that, um, he has a shot at really doing well at Kona, and we're we're, we're talking about you know trying to do place in the age group um, at a pretty high level. So um, it's it's pretty exciting, and it's just it's just exciting to see regular people get results. You know, I have several people I'm working with right now that come to mind who are um, you know just people who are trying to. Get the the whole fat adaptation right, um, and as we've talked about, you know, a lot of this stuff in the keto sphere has kind of come off the wheel, the wheels have come off because it's kind of gotten so dogmatic, and um, nobody's looking at the nuances and in the individualization.
0: Well, I think let's talk a little bit about that the individualization. As I work a lot with the athletes, and I, and I talk a lot about how m- much you can tolerate. Uh, carbohydrates depends on your body and I believe a lot of it is your fasting insulin levels, but the, after the hard reset, which is the initial part where you're really training the body to tap into its fat stores, how does someone go about testing how much carbohydrate they can tolerate or optimize their performance?
1: Well, that's a that's a complex question. I'm going to give you the the, the wishy washy it depends answer because there's so many variables. And this is things people really need to know. It's not you know we all want that magic pill or that easy black and white answer, but you know I'm here to tell you they, there isn't one. And it's not that it can't be doable for you. It actually is very doable, but. Thinking you're going to find it, and one easy answer is is not going to do it. It's kind of like a journey, and that, that's what the whole individualization is. So, once you get um, once you get go through that initial thing, I tend for most people, I tend to go by feel because most the bulk of people out there aren't literally wrecked, you know, to where they need to have blood blood draws to kind of see where they are and see and to look at. So. You know, as you know, Stephanie, going through that first couple of weeks of, of, of substance withdrawal is key. And once you've gotten off that, you know, you know you're doing well if if your the cravings are gone and your energy level is much more stable and, and you're feeling better and you've brought in enough salt and hydration to keep from having the the keto flu, as they say. But you know, it's also important to know that that while you've kind of come off climbing the walls, you don't feel all that great in terms of athletic performance yet. And that, that usually takes another six to eight weeks of, of transitioning where your hormones and, and enzymes are up regularly. So, you know, you want, it's a, it's a, you know, an eight to 12 week approach just to get to that. that right. Well,
0: in some people it takes a lot longer depending on your metabolic state. So if someone who's very, become very insulin resistant, it can take up to six
1: months, Right. Well, yeah, that's that's why I qualified. If you're not metabolically wrecked, which, right. which most people aren't, you can do it mostly by feel. Um, you know, some people, like like my partner, Doctor Edwards, would like to see everybody do blood work, and, and I, I don't deny that blood work's really good, and especially like taking things like your hemoglobin A one C, your fasting insulin, and your triglycerides, are all good, good really. To me, those are the real solid markers of how well-adapted you are, um, but um, I think that, that most people who aren't metabolically, erect, metabolically um, wrecked usually can go by feel, and I, I think certainly like your case, you were, you were somewhat metabolically compromised, but still we managed to get you going by, by more feel than doing a bunch of tests.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I still did a bunch of tests just because I wasn't feeling great. But before I even met you, I had done a bunch of blood tests and the hormone numbers were not very good. And I had already repaired a lot of things before I had met you. So I think depending on how bad someone feels when they start this program depends on the level of tediousness to fix it. You know,
1: like that's that. right. That's why. That's why I qualified it with with the. If you're not metabolically wrecked, you can basically go by feel. And, and if you are, like you had the hormones taken care of. But but you know, like when we got you going, it was great, Like okay, this is the real world. and We want to use the real world experience and couple it with say metrics, um, because a lot of people, frankly, a lot of people, you know, are are economically challenged to do a bunch of blood tests because really to make blood tests work, you really don't want to take one set of blood tests. You probably want to take multiples and that can get very costly in a a hurry to get, get the good trend lines to really use as as an effective tool. So, and and I don't want people to be, be, you know, stressing about costs and stuff like that. So I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti it, but I, I just want people to, to balance it within their, you know, their budget and everything else. Right. Um, the other thing that, that I see as a trend is a lot of type A people get too fixated on the metrics. And we should use these, these as valuable tools um, to help guide us. But I see a lot of people who chase numbers. You know what I mean, Seth?
0: Right. I mean, and I agree. I think that the extremes are people who, for one – don't restrict enough carbohydrates for long enough to become fat adapted two and then two the people who who get re- good results from restricting carbohydrates that they're so afraid to add them back in when yep. it comes to you know your big blocks of training and your heart and races so those what? are like the two extremes
1: yeah, and, and, and like I said, with the with the whole thing about the chasing the numbers with metrics, a perfect example is how athletes are chasing their their ketone, their serum ketone levels all over the place. And and, and when they become well adapted, what the trend we see is much lower um, serum ketone levels, which means right. your your blood sugar, your blood ketones are much lower, and, and actually clinically out of ketosis and an important point here is, and then people just go nuts because they're not getting the ketone numbers that put them in clinical ketosis. Right. Um, and, and so they stress about it, and that makes it even worse. And when they really need to realize that the, the body of science that the clinical level of ketones is based upon is based on a relatively sedentary population.
0: Right, your body starts to use those ketones for fuel, and when it starts using ketones, you're not going to see them in your urine and not really in your, bo- in your breath or your blood anymore very well, you'll
1: much. See, you'll see them in your breath because that's, that's a marker of actually meta- me- metabolizing right. the ketones because um, acetate gets, gets converted into acetoacetate, and, and acetoacetate is a very unstable ketone body. And, but the body has a very very elegant way of, it's, when you can convert the um, oxaloacetate into acetoacetate, it immediately can get burned um, as energy. And so you don't see it getting converted to beta- beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a much more stable uh, ketone, the one that gets um, put into your serum. And if it doesn't get burned, it gets shunned to the kidneys for excretion. And so, um, yeah, and like I said, relatively speaking, you know, people need to re- recognize the paradigm of ketosis is based on sedentary subjects. The paradigm that we're seeing in fat adaptation is based on well-adapted, highly active people, and so, and and, and so, this is why we see the the lower uh, ketone. That's something that I think. Should be seminal in this this conversation as we move right. forward because keto has become so popular now that that um, you've got a lot of people who know just enough to be dangerous, posting all over social media and blogging, and um, you know, then people take that information um, and go you know, a
0: little crazy with it.
1: Yeah, they go crazy with it, and then they don't they don't understand the individualization. They don't understand the nuances. And they actually can, you know, have struggle even more by, by getting quote-unquote information and, and, and not using it correctly for their situation.
0: Right. And something that I noticed personally that a lot of folks, when they're looking at uh, research and numbers for ketosis for a non-athlete, the protein numbers that are recommended are way too low. For me, I notice that I recover a lot better when I have more protein. And like uh, Jason Fung and um, Dr. Westman, the the numbers that they, the protein numbers are really... especially,
1: especially, Especially Ron Rosedale.
0: Right. So those protein numbers don't work for a non, for an athlete. Because their body still needs a fair amount of protein for recovery and to rebuild. And they're worried about uh, gluconeogenesis, which if you, um, I think that that's, that's a big problem with people who are following the ketone or the ketogenic research and blogs for people who are non-athletes compared to athletes. That's a, a big Difference.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a multifaceted thing, and it's a good—it's good you brought up this subject about protein. Um, so I'll kind of go into it in, in the various views. Now, um, you're absolutely right. What we're seeing in the tea leaves, and of course, the, the body of science hasn't been built on this, is that in an athlete, the protein numbers are much higher, significantly higher than what the, the traditional ketogenic diet follows, particularly ketogenic diet for, say, uh, somebody with grand mal seizures or somebody who wants to be in deep ketosis.
0: Or uh, someone who, yeah, or one of, like, Jason Fung treats a lot of people with kidney disease, so they already have compromised kidneys, so their protein numbers are going to be super low. But in, you know, Jeff Bullock and Stephen Finney, their book says 06 grams to point one or to 1.0 per lean mass which that's a significantly higher number than than what's recommended from jimmy moore or a lot of those other i I agree and
1: i think that that their numbers are probably a little on the low side too not too low i think that's adequate but i think that that you should be on the upper if you're athletic and you are get you are You know, seeing all the benefits of fat adaptation, that that the protein levels um, should be on the higher end, like in that 0.8 to 1 to even 1 in 1.25 or 1.3 grams. Right.
0: That's about what I I do. When I try to track it, I track it every so often because I lean on the, like, naturally, I don't eat as much protein as what is... I feel good eating, so I feel the best eating about 1.1 to 1.2 grams per lean mass.
1: you Are right there a, when I said right? Yeah.
0: Right, right, when in a in a in the in a hard training block. Right. So now, and
1: what? Yeah, you know, what I suggest with people with the protein is protein. I this is these are some of the things that I, I just kind of that kind of get me rolling my eyes. Is people throw the word protein out there, and it's like you know, protein is such a general word. We don't know what, what that is. So, um, you know, um, I want people to, to understand that let's, let's do real food and, and tend it towards animal protein, whole animal protein. Right. In their and I'm a
0: huge, step. right.
1: You, you, know, you I'm and a I huge... are on the same page, but we want right. to, we want to really reiterate this. I, you know, I hear this stuff about pea protein and Oh
0: yeah, and that's garbage, and, yeah. And
1: all this man-made stuff and, and they, you know, they 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 prayed out all these studies and they prayed out all these studies about BCAAs for athletics and it's it's just it's very profitable when you're taking a a, a byproduct that costs very little and and making it into a product you can sell. And so then you can afford to do these kind of studies. You know, you don't see the Beef Council rolling out new studies on eating a steak. Because
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they don't have the you, budget, so. Right. And the amino acid profile, you're only going to get a good amino acid profile from an animal product. From,
1: from complete animal protein sources. Right, and, and, right,
0: right. Like an animal, and, like muscle meat or organ meat.
1: Organ meat or, or, or whole eggs. And, and the key there is like... Right. Like most of your the meats that, that humans really like, they have a significant amount of fat. Like a well marbled ribeye steak is 50 to 65% fat calories. Um, when you eat an egg with a yolk, you're getting lots of fat calories from the cholesterols within that egg yolk. Um, so you're getting the fat you need to be able to assimilate the, the, the protein. And that's one of the key things is... You, you know, and Spinney and Bollock are very clear on this, that, that protein is best assimilated in a high fat environment. Now, and part of my thinking on this, um, which I shared with Dr. Edwards, and he actually said, wow, nobody's ever thought about it that way, but you're right. But when you're in a fasted state, which means you're not eating a ton of meals, like, you know, one or two big meals a day with another snack, you you fast, so your, your gallbladder fills up with bile. And so, having not eaten for several hours, your, your gallbladder's full, when you eat that that protein and fat meal, you, the fat triggers real effective bile excretion. And bile is the emulsifier that allows you to assimilate fat. And the stomach acids break down the protein, assimilate into lipoproteins with the fat. And then the bile helps you to emulsify it so you can get the optimal nutritional absorption from that meal. That's how your stomach works. Okay? And so we want to see that um, that sort of event, you know, going into a, a a high fat, moderate protein meal with, in a fasted state so that your, your gallbladder is going to work exactly the way it's meant to work. So it excretes all that bile. It keeps the bile ducts clean so you don't get gallstones and you emulsify those lipoproteins and, and be able to transit the the stomach and gut in a way that it gets in your bloodstream in a way that just really gives you that optimal uptake on the minimal amount of food you need to take in.
0: Well, I have never heard of that either, but that makes a lot of sense too. Like we were made to eat meat, which I think both of us agree that that's just really what the body was designed to do. And the, the green leafy things are you know, in many indigenous cultures, were not consumed at all or very little.
1: So uh, yeah, yeah, they sure,
0: yeah. sure the heck didn't have a way to make pea protein back, you know, 500 years ago.
1: That, that's correct. They didn't have, they didn't have all that. So, so we want to be clear on the on the whole subject of what is, what should be your principal protein source. Like 60, 70, 80 percent of your protein should be whole natural animal dry proteins. Now, on top of that, a little whey protein, maybe even some pea protein. I, I, there's I facetious- the- yeah, I'm not a fan of pea I'm, protein. I'm ag- I, I agree with you, and there's a lot of facetiousness in my voice there, but I don't mean to insult anybody. Um, truly, that's not. I just find it very, very odd from a hard science perspective. But, but – even whey protein, there's there's issues with because you're not getting a complete protein. Um, but anyway, those kinds of things and, and maybe processed meats, uh, processed meats can be and cheeses can be great supplemental ways to get a meal in on the go. Um, you know, you want to make it practical and doable. So you know, salami and cheese as a, a lunch, you know, when you don't have anything else, is is a great great way to get through things, right? Right, um, yeah. But it shouldn't, you know, processed meats and all these quote-unquote protein supplement products shouldn't constitute a significant, you know, a hugely significant part of that protein uh, profile. Um, so um, going back to – so there's a couple of things. You've got the gluconeogenic effects, and I think that that, that comes into play more so with a sedentary person because – I think it's important for the um, audience to understand that, that ketosis deep ketosis really is a conservation state. It makes you highly efficient, it makes you burn fat, but it also makes you you know conserve protein, yet if you're in a starvation ketosis mode, you're gonna you're gonna catabolize protein to make, you know, glucose for your brain. So it's it's a very complex picture. And so the whole gluconeogenesis thing you know, is born out of this conservation state and that glucose, you know, in a fasted state is um, something that um, would cause, isn't going to have the same effect as gluconeogenesis in a Fed athletic state. Person, right? in you know, a well-fed person who's, but, but more so for the athletic person who's creating a stimulus, the gluconeogenesis and the potential for a, a resulting insulin response in an athletic person who's done a workout, who's created an adaptive stress, who needs to be super compensating. That insulin response actually is necessary if your insulin levels are low and your insulin sensitivity is high. Because a lot of people in keto don't realize that insulin is is one of the most anabolic steroids right. hormones there are. And excuse me, hormones there are. It's it's not as anabolic as testosterone, but it, it, compared to most other hormones, it's very anabolic. And that's why you know. Insulin. Well, it grows
0: something. It grows yeah. fat. It grows cancer. It grows muscle. It grows right, something.
1: Right, right. 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 And that's right. And so insulin, in that in that paradigm, is actually good. Whereas insulin in a sedentary person can have those unintended consequences of cancer. But insulin and IGF one and two, all the insulin like growth factors that are found in like dairy, like milk, there's a reason why babies and athletes grow because of these insulinic responses. And so um, maintaining insulin sensitivity and low basal insulin levels and then using insulin for anabolism is very healthy. Um, when you're talking about sedentary people, it's not. And then you have the whole other question that Ron Rosedale really stresses about the whole mTOR activation and why he's super low protein. And, and again, I don't think that these are issues when you're keeping yourself in a highly athletic, aerobic athletic environment, um, to where you're you're creating the stressors that, that's going to use insulin, uh, mTOR, and all these things to upregulate to have growth of muscles, hormones, et cetera, in a positive way, rather than things like cancers and you know rising insulin levels and you know insulin resistance and, and all the things that, that are a problem.
0: Right. right, and that's the big, uh, I guess, discrepancy or the difference between athletes who follow a ketogenic diet and non-athletes. Like, there's a lot of um, tinkering that goes on to find the what works best for you, and you can't just rely on some, you know, I love Jimmy Moore and his podcast and the work that he does, but a lot of the, the things that he recommends are for people who are non Not him specifically, but a lot of the people he interviews recommends are for non-athletes. And that's just a different, your body operates differently when you are adding a lot of stimulus or stress to it.
1: Yeah, no, and and, and once again, it goes right back to what, what we really, both of us really stress is the individualization, you know, um, there's this huge swath in athletes based on the different genetics of an athlete, the different sports you're doing, uh, et cetera. And then you open that up to include all people, that that swath of variability just increases, you know, a hundredfold or more. And so, you know, the variables that go into it and how the context of how things um are going to be uptaken and utilized and all the paradigm is very different when you're an active fat adapted athlete versus a sedentary one.
0: Right. But I think the key is or the foundation that we both agree on. Burning fat is the foundation. All the other stuff, I you know, the food pyramid or the standard American diet, that foundation is a, a foundation of burning carbohydrates. And that basically burns out the switch is switching over to fat carb burning and carb burning. But what the OFM is about is the foundation is burning fat and having the ability for that switch to go back and forth that depending on the intensity of training you can add in those carbs or add in, you know, definitely add in the more protein so that switch works, that your body has it's able to use multiple fuel sources to optimize performance.
1: That's exactly right. And, and it takes back to what, what the what one what of my core philosophies or things are about, about OFM is I, I, I look at what were those evolutionary pressures that shaped us to be the robust humans we, we really became before pre agriculture and, and and we really are super robust and, and and able to take that and but and also out of that millennia of, of, of evolution or intelligent design, whatever shaped us, we also had that that built-in flexibility, and, and, and we've so abused that flexibility over the last ten thousand years that we're, we're, we've arrived at where we are in the general population in terms of health. So, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be flexible. So, you know, I think you and I both agree that that when you're athletic, you you start to regain a lot of that flexibility, and and, and depending on who you are, how metabolically compromised you are, whether you're male or female. Um,
0: your genetics. That,
1: your, yeah. yeah, your genetics, what sport you're doing, that flexibility can be really substantial. You know, I was talking with John Rutherford, who's so far the highest guy recorded um, to burn fat at 1.8 grams a minute in the faster study. You know, we were talking about how badly you can abuse, you know, us males who are well adapted, once you're well adapted, can abuse it and still go right back into burning fat, whereas, say, somebody like you couldn't abuse it. As a, as a no. forty-some odd year old female, you could not abuse it nearly to the extent that we could.
0: Right. Well, my yeah, my husband's a good example. He can switch back and forth pretty well, as long as he gets enough protein and he can, you know, eat garbage and still be a really good fat burner. Um, I cannot. As soon as I slip off that, uh, um, slip off. the fat burning switch yeah (laughs) as soon as i do that i mean it's a pretty sleep steep downward slope not near as bad as it used to be because i've been fat adapted and or oh you know so long that i slip back into fat adaptation pretty quickly whenever i get strict but i have to stay strict It, it you know if i once and i can tell the difference between when i'm burning carbohydrates and the switch is broken where i run out of fuel i think that's the thing you'll know if you if you ever bonk you're not fat, you're not fat adapted cuz uh you know you can tap into that extra fuel source whenever um i've got it dialed in
1: yeah so uh, yeah so i think that you know the thing is 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 yeah protein is definitely uh what we're seeing in the real world is protein is definitely on the higher level i'm not sure you need to go up to 1.5 grams per per pound of body weight but i, I think that that sweet spot is like 0. 0.8 to 1.3 um, and keeping well, I, fat macros fairly high
0: i think the thing is that people get confused with bodybuilding like a lot of bodybuilders want to consume two grams per pound of lean mass and that is on the extreme end that's a that's high protein but so moderate protein is not a very definitive number it's not very uh like when someone says oh moderate protein well moderate protein could be 50 grams a day or it could be 150 grams a day so i think that the you know in the very first page of the chapter in the art and science, low carbohydrate performance, it says 0.6 to one, you know, and, and just through tinkering and, um, doing the keto gains program for a little while, the, you know, they recommend a little bit higher depending on the person. And I think that that, that sweet spot is something you have to tinker with you know, how you feel and how you recover and how you, you know, whenever you're performing. So that, um, and for me, just like you'd said, it's like, it's about 1.2 grams per lean mass. And and that seems to be the sweet spot for me.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's all good. And I think that, um, yeah, keto gains is really, they're also one of the people are sort of on the same page as me and they have a wonderful macro calculator, um, and, um, but I see that, you know, like, like one of the things I think a lot of people need to recognize, particularly females, is when they're in the hard training block, they, some, some women need to have a fair amount of carbs, otherwise they will dig themselves a big hole adrenally. They'll put a lot of stress on their adrenals if they're not getting those carbs to get them through that workout to be able to push that upper end of their spectrum. Yeah.
0: And that depends on the female too, because I don't do well with the extra.
1: Yeah, mass. no, I, I know you don't. But but most females do um, for a complex reason. I was going to actually say it. And there's some women who really can't tolerate much of anything. You know, just a very little bit. But but even you take in a little bit, like your your famous Rolo trick.
0: Right. Well, I do that on depending on what the block of training is. So if I'm in the building block, I'm built or building base, I I don't take any carbohydrates during training. But that's a lower intensity. But when I'm doing the build and I add intervals, I do add carbs. So it depends on the part of the training that I'm doing. So that's, I mean, and that's a variable too, is the block of training. And then when I'm racing, I do take in carbs. I do Vespa and carbs for races.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I, that's the point I wanted to make is is, you know, there's a lot of the uh, keto sphere right now is like if it's not working, go lower, and that may work in some instances, but in a lot of instances, it might cause the athlete to dig a hole for themselves. I've seen a lot of that go on.
0: And I think that's the part where people have to listen to their body and say, you know, a lot of times people feel bad during the the uh when you're really doing the the hard reset and that should be expected. You're you should expect to feel a little tired and lethargic for the first couple weeks, but after that you should start to feel better even though you may not perform as fast as you would like. But then at that point, you have to start listening to your body and seeing how fast you recover. If it's taking, you know, if you do a hard workout and it takes you three days to recover, well, there's something wrong with that scenario. That, that's, that's when you're, right. So you have to be able to say, hey, you know, what what I'm doing is not working. And, you know, how I found OFM and fat adaptation was that I, I had tried the, vegan diet I was following uh, Scott Jurek and thought oh well he performs well so I'm going to try that and that's when the the wheels fell off the bus and I realized obviously that was not a program that works well for me but uh so at some point you have to whatever advice you're getting you have to test it against your body because if we all have different genes different environments stress levels that um how your body responds is the best indicator of if the program's working for you or not.
1: Yeah. And, and let's, let's move this on to the next really important point, which is the stress levels. And and I think that, that when you're, when you're stressing out type A, that's great for burning sugar. And it works for a lot of sugar burners because you're pinging your cortisol and it really, you no know, it helps you to access sugar, even when you become a little incense, insulin resistance, but it it works terribly against you if you're trying to burn fat. And, and, So we want people to relax and enjoy the journey and commit to it and have a little bit of faith in in the process because it's not, you know, part of the process is going to be to make mistakes. You learn what not to do, but not stressing and learning how to deal with stress in a more productive way, because that's one thing I see and I talk about all the time is chronic stress, um, especially the mental stress of our life load, everyday life load and the very didactic way didactic way we, we approach training is not intuitive or even diet it's not intuitive um it really works against our fat burning and it's just as big a component as all the carbohydrates in the diet the chronic stress and the carbohydrates are the two biggest things i see as you know low-hanging fruit and getting fat adapted now that's one of the reasons why I want people to become more intuitive about how they're feeling, and Steph has just really done a great job of, of, of talking about that. But also, like when we're talking about food and how many grams, well, let's take the grams into you know, practice of the real world. Is You might want to measure your food before, but then see what that looks like. How big a steak does that look like? How many eggs? Um and then also getting into the whole OFM thing about nutrition, not calories, and balancing it out with organ meat and skin and connective tissue by making broth and having gelatin in your diet and seeing what that looks like. Um, another thing that, that I find is very useful, I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion, is if you're eating like leafy green and non-starchy vegetables, don't, you don't really need to count those as carb calories. Um, right. I agree. I, I think that people are so conscious about ca- counting their carb calories that they, they they just they go off the rails. And, and really, what you need to watch it is the starchy vegetables, uh, grains if you tolerate them well, and anything else that has a significant amount of car- or carbohydrates. A lot of dairy will have significant carbs in them. So those that's where you want to cr- count because you know your, your non-starchy vegetables. Essentially, what happens. In terms of the human digestive tract, self transit your stomach, your small intestine, and go to the colon. And the nutrition, most of the nutrition, virtually all of the nutrition you get out of your vegetables, um, is derived not from the, the vegetables themselves, but in the fatty in the in the in the biome breaking down those vegetables in your colon, mostly and mainly in your colon. And making them into fatty acids and lipoproteins and dead bacteria that your body actually absorbs for the nutrition. So when it breaks down in the colon, most of those carbohydrates are actually consumed by the bacteria in your colon rather than transiting your gut and into your bloodstream. Whereas when you have starchy starchy foods or high glucose sugary foods, that glucose starts to transit. The medium, you know, it starts to transit when when it hits your your mouth. And
0: right, right, the,
1: right right you know <laughs> if all the way through your stomach and small intestine it's it's you know you got glucose transiting directly into the bloodstream so you know and you know you just basically can stop counting non-starchy vegetables in my opinion
0: i agree i think for people who don't want who get too wrapped up around it i tell them just focus on getting enough protein from real from animals And then, then don't worry about the other stuff. Just track that at first, just because it gives you one thing to focus on and not to be, and just stick to real food. Yeah. So it's not to where they get so overwhelmed. And, you know, if someone's not metabolically broken and you tell them to eat, you know, eat hamburger or steak or, you know, fatty fish, like salmon, you know, they're going to get their fats and... Use olive oil um, on your salad. You're going to get all the fat and protein you need. And as long as you're not adding garbage, you know, if you're in a big training block, it's not going to hurt you to have a sweet potato and butter. It's not... Um, you,
1: that's exactly right.
0: Right. So you're not going... Just focus on getting the protein that has fat with it and uh, it, it'll... Ah.
1: And if, end up being yeah, the right ratio. Yeah, and if you're on the road, you know, steak and a regular baked potato with loaded up with butter, sour cream, chives, bacon, whatever, cheese, that's, you know, make it easy so you're not stressing. Like I said, that stress, that balancing out stress with that, I mean, I don't, we don't, you know, if if you have the lifestyle and income where you can shop at Whole Paycheck and go to the farmer's market and source your, your meat from a, a, a farmer and eggs and, and all that sort of thing, that's great. That's wonderful. It's relaxing. It's enjoyable. And you can make that a lifestyle. That's great. But if you're somebody that's stressed out financially, don't have all the resources in the world and, and time resources, you can just these basics we're talking about, you can get the regular supermarket. There's no need to um, do that. And If you're on a budget, you know, eggs are dirt cheap. A lot of dairy is dirt cheap. They give liver away. The supermarkets put yeah. chicken, pork, beef, and even fish on sale. So shop the sales, shop the produce in season, because they they use those as loss leaders to bring people into the supermarkets, expecting if you get
0: a whole, yeah, right. And they're going to, if you get a whole chicken, you can make, you know, eat the chicken, leave the bones in the crock pot, add a little acid, like lemon juice, and you can add a little gelatin and then, uh, you know, drink the broth and you're getting connective tissue. And that's, you know, a great way to, yeah, to make your chicken stretch out. There's, it doesn't have to be super hard or expensive. I just bought, um, I'm doing another meat only stint because it seems like it helps me. I like the the zero carb for a while. And, uh, whenever I get off track, that's where, that's what I do to get things dialed back in. And I bought a bunch of hamburger from Costco. And for five days, it was $18.00. Cause I divided it up. I'm eating a pound and a half or planned out a pound and a half a day. So $18 by, you know, for a week, that's how much per day.
1: Yeah. and that's, Well,
0: it's for, it's that's um, $9 a day or not $9 a day, but, um,
1: uh, $2 a day.
0: Yeah. I was doing, um,
1: it's it's nothing. The, the point is it's nothing, and that's that's the thing. It's right. Like the most. Nutritious. Right. Yeah.
0: It's two bu- two bucks a day. Not yeah. not bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the most nutritious foods are the ones that 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 are actually the cheapest in the stores, and and so I think that that people need to really understand not to stress, and that you can get everything you can need at your local supermarket very quickly, and it's you can you can prepare it in ways that are very quick and develop those new strategies the biggest thing is actually just changing your strategies and what right,
0: wrapping your head around yeah what what is food when yeah you, after you've done this for a while you don't really have to think about i mean i still weigh and measure things because the the protein because i don't get enough unless i do that because my head and my what actual the protein amount is not always matching but uh You know, once you get your head around it, it's not really super complicated. It's just, you know, eat real food and make sure you get enough protein. And as long as there's fat with the protein, it's all good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, what else you want to talk about today, Steph?
0: I think that those are the big things. Is just about, you know, the latest research. Because keto has become more and more popular. And I don't know how much... You know, I told you we were, I'm going to the endurance coaching summit again, uh, at last year, last year I was so upset because all of the speakers talked about carb, carb, carb. And, uh, they, many of them talked very poorly about fat adaptation and keto and, uh, and a lot of it's cause they just don't understand how it works. They don't understand that fat adaptation doesn't mean no carbs ever, (laughs) but, uh, and then the, um, this year, Paul Larson, who wrote, uh, an art, he's publishes a lot of articles or in journals, but him and Dr. Maffetone published a article about the, um, athletes who are fit, but unhealthy, and he's going to give a talk on that, and then, um, Dave Scott has come out. Uh, he's a big fan of Doc, uh, Professor Noakes, and he is going to be a speaker at the conference as well. So last year, no you know, bad-mouthing, fat adaptation. This year, we have two speakers who are promoting fat adaptation. So I think that's, that's an encouraging trend.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's still a, a ways off because – what you're seeing is a, a lot of polarization where you've got the high-carb camp pushing back from the realities that, you know, studies like Faster and Paul Larson's study are showing, and and they're ignoring the, the, the downstream consequences of eating that much sugar through a high-carbohydrate diet, even on athletes. And then you have the keto group, which is like they're you know, they're scared shitless of sugar. I mean, I hate to put it any other way, but you get I, I remember I had one guy call me back demanding a refund on his order because he didn't realize Vespa had, you know, four grams of honey in it. Honey was sugar.
0: Oh my gosh. Four grams yeah. is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna burn that off in the first five minutes. No,
1: I know trivial sugar and he just you know, he was following the, the no sugar, no grain thing, mantra and it's just like people just, it gets me that they don't think of the context of it. And, and well, so it's part of that polarization. Yeah. And, and it's like, I'm not saying that. And here's the thing. I, I honestly believe people in the high card camp and people in the low card camp, their message is well intended, but they, they're so right in their own mind. They can't step back to hear counter views and really take in, you know, and understand what's going on here.
0: Well, what I like to describe it as is that it's basically it, we have a switch where we burn fat and we burn carbs. And if you're if you're broken in one way or the other, you're still broken. So you want to be able to burn both. You want to have the switch needs to be working so you have access to that and your body operates you know in both paradigms. So it's like, uh, although if you're fat, you know, if you are very keto and, and then you do eat sugar, it's automatic that your body will switch over. But the, um, I think that's the big thing is that it'll take time, but people are coming around just because they, you know, it takes a little while for people to, it to sink in. I mean, if the more broken people are, the, you know, people are getting sick. People who eat sugar all the time, they don't feel very good. And people who only eat fat don't perform at the levels that they probably would like to. And it'll come around.
1: Yeah, it, no, it, it will. But I, I just think that the, the, the polarization is, is is a big part of the challenge right now. And it's, it's part of human nature to have this like all or nothing sort of mindset, you know, because people believe in the high carb thing firmly believe it. They, they ignore the realities of it. And it's like I say, you know, even, even for athletes, it's not a question of if you're going to have a problem, it's when in what form, you know? Right. Uh, and, you know, so, but, you know, and that's becoming more evident, especially in a sedentary population, how too excess carbohydrate in the diet is, is leading, is really sort of the underlying uh, elephant in the room for why we have so, so many chronic diseases. But because, athletes are cycling their glycogen they can delay it for a while but it doesn't it doesn't mean they're they're immune from that system it just takes up it takes up different manifestations you know like people get gi distress or they get injured easily you know
0: inflamed prostate
1: right exactly yeah. all kinds
0: Hypo hypoglycemia um, yeah. Yep. yeah hypoglycemia i don't know if i you saw the study that the hypoglycemia is a indicator of future heart disease, which of course that makes sense to us. But that um, there are many, many athletes that are hypoglycemic. I went to a, I was at the conference last year, and walking out, and these two girls were talking to each other, and they said, "Don't they? They, they understand we're athletes. We have to eat every two hours." And I was thinking. Don't they, don't you understand you're hypoglycemic. You should be able to last hours and hours if you're not without eating. Yeah. You should be able to last, you know, six, eight hours if you're not doing anything without food and be fine. Yeah.
1: I just had a golf uh, pro, a guy who just turned into, he just turned pro in the golf and he's on the PGA circuit now. And he said to me, oh, a couple of weeks ago, he said, if you had told me six months ago, I'd play this well and not have to eat every three hours. I would have thought you were crazy. Wouldn't have believed you. And he's an athlete. We're coaching through Dr. Edwards and I. And, and, and you know, he's just, he's playing at a, at a level he never thought he could accelerate to that fast. And I, and I see him, you know, we're working with him and we're going to, you know, he'll be one of the big, big names in a couple of years. I'm sure of that. So
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it's so fun for me as a coach to see my clients do so well and place in races that they were last in the previous year. So it's exciting to see that. It's just that, you know, the athletes who come to me usually have some buy-in, um, very are into, you know, low carb or they had good results from it. So, um, that, that's how they find me and just, getting them to tinker it a little bit and just to see the amazing results they have is pretty exciting. And I'm sure it's yeah. exciting for you, Peter, to see so many athletes. Because you you and Jonathan Edwards especially work with a little higher caliber um, athletes. I wouldn't say that. Who... Every, every
1: athlete's the same, same in my book. You know that. You know that from your experience. Right. Well,
0: well, I know. <laughs> I'm going to help But anybody. I'm just saying, I know you would help anybody. But I'm talking about, you know, Jonathan's working with people on the Pro tour and professional golfers. So that I mean, those are not necessarily the same athletes that I'm working with, but they're still getting really pretty fabulous results, which is exciting. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, no, this is all good. All right, Steph, well let's um let's circle around. We should we should have another podcast soon about the the whole science thing and talk about the context of science so people can get a better understanding of what is science and what is not science. And as we were talking about, we'll we'll leave this teaser for everybody. Most of the nutritional studies out there and a lot of the sports physiology um, studies out there, if people really understood what is science and they understood the um, academic, how academic uh, journals are ranked, they would would quickly learn, and the whole peer review process, they would quickly learn most of the science out there is not science, so stay tuned. It's based
0: on industry. Yeah, yeah.
1: stay tuned. Well, and, and I'll explain pretty well why in, in very understandable
0: Well, we'll plan on talking about that again, about how do you know if the study you're reading is a good study. Well, I think that would
1: Yeah, be... I think we should, but, but also people don't have to understand because, like, even I with a BS, and, and I'm into this, a lot of times I can get the gist of a study, but, you know... It's like um, hard to really, you know, go through. I can't get the stats. You know, I'm not a statistician and all that. So people shouldn't feel like they, they're they some inferior because they don't, because most of these, and that's, that's the unfortunate reality is we'll talk about this. There's a lot of intellectual dishonesty right now going on because a lot of academics and physicians.
0: Well, there's a lot of money involved. There's a
1: lot of money Just involved. Like involved uh, and they know Antle- Yeah, if they put something out, that they know is not science. They know that the, the average consumer is not going to recognize that as that's it, not science and call it out on.
0: Well, even Ansel Keys was paid off sixty thousand dollars, and that's like the base of our. That's where we got our food pyramid.
1: Well, yeah, or that's I, where the whole low rem- fat. Remember, sixty thousand dollars back when he got that money was a lot of money.
0: Right. But, but yeah, but the thing is, you know, in the fifties, he, he was paid off and that's what our nutritional guidelines are based on his research. So it wasn't until 2000 and, you know, 15, 2016, it came out that he, we found out that he was actually paid off, but, um, you know, it, it once the, the, you know, low fat, high sugar got in people's heads. It sort of got stuck there, and especially with endurance athletes. Yeah. I think they're the, the biggest ones. But, yes, we will definitely talk about that next time, Peter. And it was great talking to you. This is super fun. And you know how much I love geeking out on
1: No problem. Geek out with stuff. you anytime, Steph. Yeah. Now we'll all right, great. Out.
0: Thanks, Peter. Take care. Okay. All right. All right.